Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is David Grand, whose new book, The White Darkness, is the story of one man's passion for Antarctica. David, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having me on the program. Before we dive into The White Darkness, I'd like to talk about your work on one of my favorite magazines. The New Yorker has explained to me everything from Bitcoin to barbecue. How did you come to be a staff <laughs> writer there? Well, I will confess it. It really was a long-time dream of mine to get to that magazine. Um, it, but it took me a long odyssey as a writer to get there. Um, you know, I, I probably spent, uh, well, more than a decade uh, working my way to get there, doing all sorts of different writing at different magazines, uh, different newspapers. And then in 2003, I wrote a story called Old Man and the Gun. Uh, it was a freelance story, and I thought the story was so good that I couldn't screw it up too much. So I pitched it to The New Yorker, and it was about a man who kept robbing banks into his 70s. He used a hearing aid, uh, which was really a police scanner. And he was also the greatest prison escape artist probably in American history. Broke out of San Quentin in a kayak in which he had painted on the side, rub-a-dub-dub. And that was my first story. And then uh, not long after that, The New Yorker uh, hired me as a staff writer, and I'm the, the other funny twist in that story was the first story I ever did for The New Yorker, and uh, they just made it into a movie more than 15, yeah, 15 years later, I guess 2018. It just came out, and uh, Robert Redford plays uh, Forrest Tucker, the uh, bank robber. Right. I, as, you were, as you were telling me about that story, I thought, wait a minute, didn't I just see a preview <laughs> for this exact story with Robert Redford? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, the story just had so many kind of a remarkable, astonishing details. I figured I couldn't screw it up, and that was my pathway to getting hired at The New Yorker. So how do you seek out a new story for a magazine like The New Yorker? Do they come to you, or do you have to go out there and find them? I think every writer is different and has a different relationship with their editor, and it kind of depends on, I think some writers like to be given stories more, and others like to find their own. I definitely fall into the latter category where I almost 95% of the time find my own stories. Um, And I'm not sure quite why that is, but there's something for me about the finding of the story, the process of finding it, and then then kind of looking into it and and being kind of having my interest peak that gets under my skin in a way um, and makes me more passionate about it. Um, but I have a wonderful editor at The New Yorker, and he has certainly given me some terrific stories uh, over the years as well. But I would say the majority in my case tend to be uh, from me looking around the world, reading newspapers and eavesdropping in Starbucks and trying to find my own story ideas. <laughs> I imagine that I'm a fairly typical reader of The New Yorker in that I'm a not only loyal reader, but a trusting reader. I believe that a 20-page essay is going to take me someplace interesting. Does that loyalty and trusting of your readers give you a freedom as a writer that you might not have if you were writing a book where a reader's going to pick it up and read the first page and then decide whether to walk out the store with it? That's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to that. I mean, 
I always feel an enormous amount of pressure in the beginning of any piece. Uh, you know, the first page of a book or the first few paragraphs of a magazine story to invite the reader into a story because I do am conscious of the fact that our attention spans are so splintered and we have so many forms of diversion. And so I, in some ways, think of my own self as a reader, that the voice you hear in those beginning pages or the character or the person you're meeting, the subject, or there's some kind of just element of intrigue. Uh, so I, I feel a similar burden in both. Um, you know, I think the difference with a book is with The New Yorker, you know that you have a a very large audience that is coming to the magazine each week. And that audience is built into the magazine and not built into the, into necessarily to you or to your story. And when you do a book, there is that challenge of uh, you don't have that audience. And so it's even harder to find an audience and, uh, and, and, and how you do is still probably a mystery to every author. <laughs> I can remember my father telling me about searching the house high and low at two o'clock in the morning for the next issue of the New Yorker. Cause he was reading something called in cold blood by Truman Capote that was serialized in the New Yorker before it came out in hardcover. Did Capote and the New Yorker in that way, some, in some ways help to define the genre that you're writing in the nonfiction that is as compelling as reading a novel? Yes, I, I do think they have over the years, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to work at the publication, and they're not the only ones who do this, but they really developed and honed the, the, this, this, the nonfiction storytelling. I set uh, In Cold Blood a little bit apart because I think Capote took uh, a fair amount of liberties, um, uh, and I think part of the challenge that the magazine has really done and honed and perfected in the modern sense is how to tell these nonfiction stories that are both grounded and rooted in fact, and yet tell a story and bring you along a narrative um, and kind of tell you a story almost in an old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the magazine over the years, and I would cite, you know, as one of the great examples, John Hersey's, you know, essay on uh, Hiroshima, uh, reported piece, you know, one of the defining pieces of nonfiction journalism, or Rachel Carson's essays on the environment. Um, these are pieces that, you know, just kind of stay with you, whether it be Liebling and uh, his writings as well. And of course, the editor at the magazine, uh, David Rednick, was somebody who I read before I got to the magazine. And before he had become an editor, um, I always thought he was kind of the master of kind of the profile. Um, and so these are people I always read and aspired and, and, and emulated, um, you know, and, and stole from in the best sense of the world of trying to best sense of the meaning of the word in terms of trying how to learn the craft of, of writing these kind of stories. So let's turn now to your book, The White Darkness. This was a book that was originally a long essay in The New Yorker. And I'll admit, I read about half of it. And then I had a friend who was going to Antarctica. And so I passed the magazine on to him. So I was really excited to get the book and and read the other half. Um, But give us a brief description of The White Darkness. Yeah, so The White Darkness is about a man named uh, um, Henry Worsley, who is kind of one of the more remarkable figures I've written about. He was a polymath. He was a talented artist and sculptor. 
He was an adventurer. He was a revered uh, British Army officer who had served tours with the SAS, which is an elite commando unit. He was um, an amateur historian who had become a leading authority on uh, the golden age of Antarctic exploration, the age of Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton. And um, he was somebody who had, in many ways, modeled his life after his hero, Ernest Shackleton, this polar explorer who, in the early 20th century, had tried to reach the South Pole several times and then tried to trek across Antarctica. He had always failed uh, in his missions. He never uh, had succeeded in, in those goals. But each time he had managed almost remarkably through his powers of endurance and his uncanny leadership to get all his parties back to safety. And he kind of emerged as one of history's greatest leaders. And uh, so Worsley had kind of modeled his life after him. He emulated him. Um, and then he decided fairly late in life, at, at the age of 47, to see if he could succeed um, in Antarctica, uh, in this place where Shackleton had failed. Um, and he sets out first on his first expedition in uh, 2008 to try to become a polar explorer himself and to see if he could succeed in this realm, which is really one of the most brutal uh, and uninhabitable environments on Earth. You start your story not at the beginning of the story, but in what a great creative writing teacher would say. You, you started in Medea Res. You start in the middle of this action. Tell us about how the how the book starts and why you chose to start at that particular point. Yeah, so um, the, the the book starts uh, on Henry Worsley's last expedition, um, where he set out to walk across Antarctica alone from one side of the continent to the other, which is something Shackleton had hoped to do in his famous endurance expedition before uh, his ship was frozen and then sank and, and sank in the ice. Um, and whereas Shackleton had hoped to do that expedition as, as part of a larger group, Worsley had decided at age 55 to try to do it alone. And he wanted to do it unsupported and unaided, which means he was doing it without the help of dogs or kites. He had to haul all his supplies and foods himself on his sled. And he was doing it without food caches planted along the route to forestall starvation. And so the book starts in that expedition, uh, actually toward the end of that expedition, where he is in more peril than he has ever been in his life. And he was somebody who, whenever he was in danger before, he would always ask himself, what would his hero do? What would Ernest Shackleton do? And this time when he's in more peril than he's ever been before, he asks himself that question, what would Shackleton do? And this time his, his life would very much depend on the answer. And so the piece kind of sets that up in that moment where he has to ask that question. And that is the central question that runs throughout the whole book. Uh, of trying to know what would Shackleton do in that moment. And it gets at this question of uh, the nature of leadership, which the piece explores, the nature of Shackleton, and the nature of reckoning with our own human limitations. But, of course, it's also a way to begin the story with a very dramatic um, cliffhanger yeah. uh, to hopefully take the reader along on this journey. Getting back to your earlier question, I think 
you know, they're knowing that people have lots of different aversions. I think it is very important to bring them into a piece and say, look, I'm going to take you someplace and follow, please, you know, follow along now uh, on this journey. When I hear about somebody undertaking something like walking alone across Antarctica, uh, my mind always goes to that quote from Edmund Hillary, who says that he climbed Mount Everest because it's there. And you, you, you have a great quote from Shackleton um, it, that you use. It. This is a top of page 12 in your book. And you say, he says, men go out into the void spaces of the world for various reasons. Some are actuated simply by a love of adventure. Some have the keen thirst for scientific knowledge, and others again are drawn away from the trodden paths by the lure of little voices, the mysterious fascination of the unknown. Why was it, do you think, that Worsley wanted to trek across Antarctica? I think it was the lure of little voices. Um, you know, it wasn't so much scientific discovery. Uh, he was going at a time when, you know, much of the world, that, or, you know, certainly the surface area has all kind of been mapped. Uh, the seas haven't been fully explored, but the, the surface area has been mapped. Um, scientific discoveries tend to be uh, less in terms of uh, discovering a place which, um, you know, was previously unknown. Um, <clears throat> and I think for, for Worsley, he always heard those little voices. You know, he had discovered that passage when he was a boy. And he, had, he was not someone who was very into his studies, but he would always disappear into the library and he would read adventure books. And one day he had pulled uh, that book from uh, that, from Shackleton. And that's the opening passage of the book. And that kind of captivated him. And I think he always kind of heard those little voices. But I think the things that compelled him to, um, you know, was part of Into the Unknown. Um, but I think there were other forces driving him. Um, you know, part of it was his, his, his father had been, you know, kind of a revered uh, British Army officer who rose to the top. And I think whereas he always wanted to kind of distinguish himself as well. I think he saw these expeditions as these kind of singular tests of character. And he also saw in Shackleton this kind of model for leadership and of how do you behave, how do you conduct yourself under the greatest, you know, degrees of extremity when you are suffering from deprivation and claustrophobia how do you behave? He wanted to test himself. And so I think all these things compelled him. And then I would even add one more component. I think this was true of Shackleton as well. And I think it's true of, of many explorers that these quests are less external than internal. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, what is Antarctica? It's really a, a, just a blank space. I mean, a, it's a, a majestic place and also a deathscape. Um, but it's a place to kind of impose yourself and it's a place where I think through that kind of suffering and self-abnegation, uh, you find something about yourself. And I think for Worsley, there was a mystical quality to his journeys and to Antarctica, even though he was not a religious man. Yeah. The first of Shackleton's journeys that Worsley's inspired by is, was the 1907 expedition. And one of the things that I thought was amazing is that Worsley discovers he's actually related to somebody who was on that expedition and then he finds other people who are related to people who are on that expedition to, to accompany him. So you have this sort of second Nimrod expedition. T tell us about the first Nimrod expedition. 
Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, Worsley, to his delight, when he was young, when he became captivated by Shackleton, he didn't actually know this beforehand. He learned after the fact, after he was already captivated with Shackleton. He was delighted to discover that he had a relative who had served in one of uh, Shackleton's expedition. It was actually, in his case, it was not the uh, Nimrod expedition; it was the Endurance expedition. Oh, okay. Um, it was Frank Worsley, uh, and um, and. Uh, so he felt he always felt this special connection, and then um, in in 2008, when when Worsley finally decides to do this expedition, they decide they're going to reenact the Nimrod expedition, right. and that Nimrod expedition was an attempt to reach uh, the South Pole. And uh, on Shackleton's expedition, they had got within 97 nautical miles of the South Pole. And then uh, Shackleton had made what Worsley believed was the most astonishing decision in the history of exploration. He had decided to turn back, even though he knew he could reach the pole, uh, because he was afraid of depleting the food and the welfare of his men. Um, and so in the reenactment of this journey, he teams up with two other descendants of Shackleton's original crew. Uh, and in this case, both were part of the Nimrod expedition. One is a uh, 37-year-old, slightly pudgy banker named Will Gow, <laughs> who is the uh, great, uh, wait, I'm sorry, the grandnephew, I never can do these descendants correctly, the great-great-grandnephew or the grandnephew, I don't know how you say it. In any case, but one of the nephew descendants of, uh, of, uh, of Shackleton uh, himself. And then the other is uh, Henry Adams, who's kind of, uh, you know, a slightly scrawny uh, shipping lawyer. He's 34 years old. And he was the descendant of the second in command, uh, Will uh, uh, Boyd. Uh, it's Boyd Adams who was the uh, second in command uh, on the Nimrod expedition. So these three men, who maybe have exploration in their genes, but have never been explorers themselves, decide they're going to set out to trace Shackleton's uh, footsteps. So they want to get to the 97-mile mark, and then from there push on to the South Pole and complete what Gal referred to as unfinished family business. Hmm. It, it amazes me because, you, you know, Wors Worsley was a, he was special forces. He was in the military. You can see him as being somebody who, you know, would have the chutzpah to walk across Antarctica. But these other two guys are just a couple of guys. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yet they, yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they begin a very arduous uh, regimen to to prepare. I mean, they 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 weren't uh, they didn't go off willy nilly. I mean, they were, you know, they they approached it with a sobriety, <laughs> with a recognition of the challenge, and they actually spent years preparing. They would um, pull tires, uh, you know, they tied tires to a harness around their waist, and they would drag them across open fields to get used to pulling sleds. Uh, they went to uh, Greenland uh, to learn how to kind of climb glaciers, roping themselves together, and how to learn to adapt and live on the ice. But as you said, uh, Worsley was in many ways the one with the most experience in terms of uh, being in command and in terms of you know, survival techniques. I mean, he was someone who was dropped into jungles and, 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 and had to survive on his own wits and living off the land. And so he naturally uh, kind of gradually assumes command over this party, uh, even though he doesn't have more polar experience than either of his two companions. Shackleton 
technically, I guess, as an explorer, might be considered a failure. He never made it to the South Pole. He never uh, did the things that he set out to do. And yet, as you've said, he is now looked upon as a real model of leadership. There's been all sorts of books written about you know the, the Shackleton uh, leadership style. Talk about his his style of leadership and what was it that about him that inspired the people who followed him? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is interesting because, you know, he early on, um, kind of failed in his missions for a while. He kind of disappeared from history and he was more obscure. someone like Robert Falcon Scott, who died, uh, on his trek, uh, uh, returning from the South pole when he was beat in a race by Amundsen, uh, was seen more as kind of this martyr. Um, and, in early on was, 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 was somebody who was more worship, but in more modern times, it's been Shackleton who has emerged as this kind of, uh, this figure who has been studied and he's studied by astronauts and executives and sports figures. So many, uh, who look at his leadership techniques and what were they? I think they, they're best illuminated by his endurance expedition that was an expedition where he wanted to trek across uh, Antarctica in this expedition, and his ship became frozen in the ice and sank. He found himself marooned on an ice floe more than a 1,000 miles from the nearest inhabited place. He had no radio to signal for help, and he had to figure out a way to get these people all back to safety. And he did various things. I mean, one of the things he did was in this kind of these hours of dread, um, he would always preach optimism. He was very keenly aware of how the psychology of one could affect and poison the whole group. And polar explorations, uh, polar expeditions over the years have served as kind of laboratories for human dynamics because of the brutal conditions. Mm. There are many accounts of, you know, backstabbing and bickering of uh, even mutinies and even murder. And so Shackleton, always conscious of that, preached optimism, um, patience. Uh, he was also someone, and this was particularly unusual in his day, uh, he ignored the, the kind of hierarchies of class and the hierarchies of kind of, of status of rank. Um, every man had to eat the same portions of food. He, you know, he didn't separate. Uh, they all had to participate in the same menial tasks. And even though Everybody knew he was in charge. His nickname was the boss. He participated in the smallest tasks himself. He did not set himself apart. Um, and he really tried to lead by example. And he always tried to distinguish that the welfare of his companions was the most important thing. So he had all these little traits, uh, including how he even recruited people. Um, that have kind of set him up as this kind of management guru that others, even in very different experience who aren't even polar explorers, have tried to use as models for how to lead others uh, in other environments. Right. I, listen, looking at Worsley's story and seeing you know a man walking across Antarctica, I try to find out how can I relate to this guy. I mean, I've I've run a couple of marathons, but I haven't ever. Dreamed of taking on something like what Double he took marathons on. Is a, hey, don't belittle that. That's well, yeah. From my but, but, but then I found out. I, I get into your book and I find out he's a book collector. I'm like, okay, we're brothers. We're fellow book collectors. Um, tell us a little something about uh, Worsley as a collector and how his collection sort of interacted with his exploration. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that 
you know, I'm certainly not a polar explorer, but one of the things that fascinated me by Wersey is that he has all these other components to his character. He certainly has the hardness of, a, of an SAS uh, officer, of a polar explorer. You know, he has this kind of wonderful artistic temperament. I mean, he was somebody who painted and, uh, you know, he would go into Afghanistan and he would pause, you know, and suddenly just paint the landscape. Um, he would. He also sewed. Um, he took up sewing because it calmed his nerves. And then he would go into prisons and he would teach inmates sewing because he thought it could be very therapeutic. So he had this hardest to him. Then he had to sign. And then, of course, he was this book collector. Um, and he would spend hours and also to the detriment or to the <laughs> to his, the detriment of his family's fortunes, he would spend a ton of money uh, going around to auctions uh, looking for old books. Now, his interests in book collecting was always about polar exploration. He was always collecting diaries and first editions, signed editions. His most prized uh, possession was a signed edition, inscribed edition of one of Shackleton's books that Shackleton had inscribed to his, his parents. Um, and he would go around collecting all these items. And when I visited his house, you know, I got, you could just see all this memorabilia, letters, diaries, books, uh, you name it that he collected uh, over the years. Uh, and he obviously, he referred to a lot of this stuff, the Shackletonia, mm -hmm. but he also collected books by all the polar explorers as well. One of the big differences between the New Yorker article and the, the book, The White Darkness, is that the book gives you space to include a lot more photographs. Um, talk about how you went about choosing the right pictures to complement your text and, and where you got those pictures from. Yeah, so... Both Shackleton and both Worsley were people who meticulously documented their expeditions, and they did it visually. And one of the reasons this became a book was because it was a vehicle or a way to share those images. And so many of those images, I think, tell a story unto themselves. And one of the challenges was actually winnowing them down and choosing which were the most telling. Um, some of the photographs bespeak to certain kind of specific moments in the text. And so there's kind of a logic to them in terms of where they come. I mean, you know, you could see, for example, on, on, on Worsley's first expedition, when he and his companions um, uh, first arrive at their base camp and they suddenly come across a hut. And they know instantly what it is. It's Shackleton's hut, the one that he had built in 1908 and stayed during the winter before he set out for the South Pole. And, and Worsley ran over to the hut. And Henry Adams found the, the bunk where his uh, great-grandfather had slept. And, uh, and there's this excitement. And you could see the photo they took. Um, and then as they set out, you know, they document this kind of alien majestic landscape that even with the power of words, I think you can only fully grasp with images. So there's, for example, even just the kind of ice they would face, they would have to battle um, all these different uh, uh, textures to the ice and you, you become connoisseurs in it because it's all you're battling every day. One of those formations they find is something called stratugi, which is this kind of uh, wind-sculpted wave formations that go and extend all the way uh, to the horizon. They literally look like if you took a violent ocean with, with, with white-capped waves 
and it was just frozen hard. Mm. And they have to go over that. And so I would include when they were battling the Sistrugi, they have, of course, some wonderful photograph of the Sistrugi. And then there are other times there's just a photograph that, I mean, some of my favorite ones are some of the landscapes, but also um, there'd be one that just kind of captured something about the spirit of the book. One of my favorite photographs in the book is from Worsley's second expedition. He, on his second expedition, he followed Amundsen's route to the South Pole and he had one other companion with him. His companion was a man named Lou Rudd. And Lou Rudd, it was his first expedition. He's kind of behind Henry. You can't see Henry's gone ahead. And he's really kind of suffering and he's, he's hungry and he's exhausted. And he suddenly sees something in the ice and can't quite tell what it is. At first he thinks it's a mirage because it looks like lettering. And then he gets closer and he realizes it is letters. And he realizes that Worsley has us carved into the ice with his pole in these enormous letters, the word, I am the Antarctic. Mm -hmm. And so you get to see that photograph. And it just all you see is, I am the Antarctic. Rudd paused, even though he was freezing, and took a picture. He thought it so perfectly captured Worsley's spirit and also his kind of playful sense of leadership. You know, here Rudd is kind of, dragging behind he knew it would make him smile and so there's a photograph like like that uh that that is just kind of eerie and and, and illustrative I, I think my favorite one is the one where he's he's alone he's lost a tooth you know like all these horrible things have happened to him and yet here he is with this big grin on his face chomping on a cigar just Looking happy, look, you know. Yes, uh, it looks like Mad Max or something. Yeah, mean, is that yeah. Mad? yeah, it looks like something out there. He's got this cap on and goggles, and yeah, that, that, and that's the family's favorite photograph of him. I mean, it just, uh, they, it just yeah. seems to really capture the spirit of somebody who, just because Antarctica is going to beat me up, it's, that's not going to cause me any problems yeah. at all, you know. Yeah, um, he just has this crazy love for this place, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your research process. How do you, you, you have scenes of a, a single man all by himself in the middle of nowhere. How do you find the sources to give you a well-rounded, um, accurate account of these events that happened in the middle of Antarctica? Yeah, so, um, you know, reporting and the challenge of nonfiction, going back to your question about kind of narrative nonfiction, is how do you find the materials that will let you, uh, you know, breathe life into the story? Where do you find, uh, you know, that information? And, and each story has its own challenges. One of the, you know, the rarities of this story is that Worsley, like Shackleton, obsessively documented uh, his journeys. And so he kept private diaries. He also did these audio dispatches where each night after a trek when he was by himself, he would call a friend in London and record a little dispatch uh, updating the world about his progress, uh, what he was going through, what he was thinking. And that would be the friend would then post that on a website. And, um, and then he also took videos and photographs. And the family really generously, um, I can't speak more highly enough of them, I just, it's a, it's a wonderful family, um, kindly uh, shared with me all those materials, including his private diaries, mm. uh, where he obviously is expressing what's, you know, some of the more deeply emotional um, and, 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 and thoughts that are expressing um, you know, the troubles he's in, in his kind of most depleted, challenging moments. 
And so, in an odd way, Henry Worsley is in a place as far away uh, and alone uh, in a landscape in which there are no other living creatures. And yet, I, because of those materials, I felt as close to him and at times as if I was walking behind, beside him. I was able to be as close to his thoughts in a way um, as much as any subject I've ever written about before. Hmm. Did you have the chance to go to Antarctica during your research? You know, I did not. And um, I wish I had kind of various reasons, mostly because whenever I do expedition, whenever I do expeditions, like I guess reporting expeditions, I would call them, I usually am kind of following somebody. Uh, for the Lost City of Z, I went to the Amazon and I, I did trek through the Amazon. I spent two months uh, humping through the Amazon. Um, and I had various places to go to. And I didn't have someone to kind of follow for this. So I didn't. And it was, I would say, in some ways, that was one of the harder challenges, was wrapping my mind around Antarctica because it is unlike any other landscape. Um, it is more like reporting around Mars than it is about reporting about a place on Earth mm. uh, because the conditions are just so unlike. I mean, unless you live, you know, maybe in Greenland, um, you know, uh, it's just unlike any other place on Earth. Yeah. Worsley wrote, passion for something can so easily tip into obsession. And that line just really popped out at me because my first novel, The Bookman's Tale, was subtitled, not by me, but by an editor, a novel of obsession. And that Seeing that subtitle made me immediately start to think about, oh, what's the difference between passion and obsession, and how are those two things related? How do you see that relationship in in Worsley? Was was he obsessed? Was he passionate? And and what's the difference? Yeah, so he certainly was obsessed. <laughs> um, he was he was um, compelled uh, to always go back to drive himself and. I think for a lot of the subjects I write about, there are people who are deeply passionate about something, but it does tip into obsession. And when it tips into obsession, and I think Henry Wurzel was one to acknowledge this, um, that it was an obsession. And and when it becomes an obsession, it often means one is excluding other elements of life. And it is more disruptive. You know, it's not a hobby anymore. You know, a hobby is you go about your job or you do your daily life and then you, you know, you have a few hours and you you go hiking or you climb a mountain or you collect something or whatever it might be. But it is not a disruptive force. And what it, I think, tips into obsession is that it becomes disruptive. It becomes all-consuming. And um, that was certainly true of Henry. And it also meant that he, in some ways, I don't think you could do what he did unless it was an obsession because he is pushing himself to venture into a place that is so um, uninhabitable, so, you know, just anathema to human life. And you need to be driven. Uh, and certainly by his last expedition, when he sets out to walk across Antarctica alone, something that nobody has ever even dared to do before, um, you need to have some sense of compulsion. That is not a hobby. <laughs> right. um, and and, and, I, and, and I, I say that on a humorous note, but then on a far more serious note, 
you know, one of the things that drew me to this story is that it, it really is a love story. And it's a love story between Henry Worsley and his wife and his family, that he is a devoted family man and a father. And yet he feels this compulsion, this obsession with this other place, with going off and being alone and testing his own character. And those, there is, a, there is a, a real tension to that. There is a cost to that. There is a risk to that. And that is a central tension uh, to the story um, and to the reality. You talk about Worsley pushing himself into this this vast uninhabitable space, um, but we see him pushing himself into into mental and emotional places as much, if not more, than into physical places. How, how what does he teach us about the difference between mental strength and physical strength? Yeah, so Worsley, you know, it's interesting. He, he Worsley, um, he wasn't you know, one of these weightlifting, you know, overly brawny individuals. And, and I think that's true of a lot of the polar explorers that they are, they have more often like cyclist bodies are very lean. Um, and, but, but for Worsley uh, on these expeditions, you know, it really was a force of mind. Uh, it was a willpower that he was always testing himself. Um, he would lose a lot of weight on these expeditions you know, you're burning between 6,000 8,000 calories, and you can only bring so much food on the sled. So you're always confronting deprivation and hunger. And you eat a lot of butter and chocolate and nuts to try to not lose weight. But Worsley would always lose an enormous amount of weight. And uh, on his last expedition, he's lost more than 40 pounds. Um, and, and he may have lost as much as 60 pounds. And so he's he is being depleted and he has to pull this, you know, 300-pound sled behind him. And it is just a will, as he would describe it. You know, Shackleton's family motto was, by endurance we conquer. And that was something Henry believed in and painted on his sled. By endurance we conquer. Mm. And that endurance he always saw as more mental than physical. One of the things that struck me as a writer, and I'm sure it did you, is that one of the things he drew on for that mental strength was poetry. Um, can you talk about yeah. his relationship with poetry? Yeah. Yeah, again, he had this art- artistic temperament, um, and he loved uh, to, you know, he would read Tennyson, he would recite lines from Tennyson. I can't think of the exact line now, but see, Kai, go find something like that, that kind of famous quote of Ventures. He um, and he would rec- he would recite uh, poetry. He 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 wasn't a poet himself, though he wrote some poetry. Um, uh, but he loved to read it. He loved literature. He would when he would walk across that vast whiteness. He would he would recite uh, bits of poetry to himself to inspire himself. He would also, which I always found uh, very moving, is he would also paint the landscape in his mind. Hmm. So he'd have this endless whiteness. And he would spend hours. I mean, what do you do? You would be walking, imagine walking 16 hours a day, humping through 70 degrees minus Fahrenheit, minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, through gale force winds, pulling your sled by yourself and looking out at this emptiness. And so your mind and the tricks your mind played. And so one of the challenge getting back to this kind of sense of endurance was how do you do that? And so Poetry was inspiring to them. Um, he would even he would also bring with him, you know, the diaries of one of these explorers, and he would read that literature, that writing, to inspire himself. 
Um, and then also painting the landscape in his mind was another thing he would do. Yeah. You quote Thomas Pynchon's line, everyone has an Antarctica. Do you have an Antarctica? <laughs> oh, so, uh, gosh, writers never like questions about themselves. I, I mean, <laughs> maybe memoirists do. I'm, I only like questions about others. Um, does everyone have an Antarctica? Yes, I think everybody does. I think everybody has a place where they seek answers, where they try to make sense. Well, say, where's the part was that is Antarctica was Antarctica. Right. <laughs> um, I think in, in writing stories and telling stories are my Antarctica in the sense that I'm looking for answers as well. Um, you know, not in such an overt, clumsy, conscious way, but I think we're all trying to make sense of the riddle of our existence. And we have this very short span of time on life on earth and what do we do with that time? And so I am always writing about people who are some ways illuminating that question. And I think what draws me to them is that I'm trying to get glimpses into that. Um, and I suppose, I, again, I'm not conscious about these things because I really think of myself as a reporter. So I'm looking outward and not inward. But I think inevitably uh, what drives you to write is to try to make sense uh, of, of, of the kind of chaos of the world using words. Mm-hmm. And I would also say the parallel to Antarctica is that every Antarctica is unconquerable. And I think that's one of the deeper lessons of the story. And one of the things that Worsley has to reckon with is his own human limitations. And I think one of the things that every writer reckons with is that every piece in some ways is a failure and that it, it never is exactly what you want it to be. And you just try to get as close as you can. And, and that's part of the journey and there are gaps and things you don't know. And you always have to reckon with that and come to terms with that. We like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners a little insight into you and your work. So if you're ready for the speed round, we will begin. Go easy on me. <laughs> what word do you love to work into your writing? Curious. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Unique. Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, my office at home. Where could you never write? In the playroom of my children. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? That's a really hard question because I'm really bad at grammar. So I'm always paying attention because I'm always self-conscious of what rule am I violating at that right, moment. Right. So the truth is I, I, I'm always, uh, you know, I always feel like I'm trying to make sure my sentences are grammatical. But I would say like some things like, you know, the things I avoid are like, I don't care if a sentence ends in like uh, about, you know, or, right, or right. for like about, I don't care about tucking. What is that? A preposition tucking that yeah. in. Um, and, uh, but one thing I'm, I, I really believe in the, in the, 
what is it the, Ox, the, the Oxford comma. comma oh yes. yeah I, I'm, a, I'm a religious believer in that I hate the two commas yeah. um, and one of my uh, and I love but uh, sorry I'm going on and on this isn't a grammatical thing but I suppose it would be like I like starting sentences with and and yeah. I really love the yeah. word and I read a lot of Hemingway growing up <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading well I don't know if I remember the first book um, but the two books that really first turned me on to books that, you know, just awakened me and excited me and made me just stay up and hide from my parents to not go to bed was S.E. Hinton's uh, novels like The Outsider, mm-hmm. Rumblefish, and then uh, Robert Cormier's books, in particular, I Am the Cheese, which had this wonderful twist at the end. And I just was haunted by that twist. And um, I think it probably influenced me because I'm always kind of interested in stories that have twists. What are you reading now? Well, uh, I just finished uh, There, There by, uh, um, forgetting his first name, uh, his last name I think is Orange, uh, which is just a kind of remarkable book by a Native American writer describing kind of urban life for Native Americans um, in, in Oakland. Uh, just a, a wonderful piece of literature. Because I do so much nonfiction and research, I tend to read more uh, literature. I'm also, for uh, reasons that um, I won't go into because it's part of my next book project, but I am reading um, everything about the sea um, and uh, naval. I've also been reading and rereading. Uh, he is I would probably say my favorite writer, Joseph Conrad. Yeah. And I have just, uh, I'm rereading uh, Lord Jim uh, mm-hmm. at the moment. What book would you like to have written? Oh, gosh, uh, Lord Jim. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, sort of, what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Oh, gosh, uh, some, some like crime thriller. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That the story has stayed with them. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been David Gran, whose book, The White Darkness, is available wherever books are sold. David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to Lisa Gabrielle about her new novel, The Winters, a modern remix of the classic Daphne du Maurier novel, Rebecca. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.